Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan, Sir Didymus Moriarty. Dagan, how are you today, my friend? The babe with the power. Kyle, yeah. hold on. Let me move this microphone away. Okay. What's different about me? What? What? Whoa! Reveal. Whoa! That's pretty awesome. I love that. Yes. (laughs) Do you like it? I do this. I do the mustache thing in case you guys and and for you listener only people. I'm rocking the mustache today. I like to think of this as like a sort of oddly a mid aughts Boston Red Sox. Jason Veritek sure. styled mustache. Yeah. I apologize. I couldn't find the cowboy hat, but I, you know, that just gives Cutter. you something to look you forward like to in the future. In the GI, in GI Joe. Right? He had the- <laughs> that's a good, that's a good pull. That's actually yeah. a good pull. The cowboy Cause that hat- was supposed to be kind of like Wade Boggs ish, right? Like Wade Boggs. Whole- yeah. I think that yeah. was kind of evoking. Yeah. That's a good point. The yeah. Wade Boggs era. Wild Bill from G.I. Joe. But, you know, the sure. cat, the hat, I really wanted to find it, but gives you guys something to look forward to. But the family hates it. Hates yeah. the mustache. That's Helene too bad, I guess. says, I look like Freddie Mercury with the mustache. It's not bad. Though. She's not wrong. Apologies to Freddie Mercury. I mean, that's not right to insult the man like that. But I think that's a I think that's a great compliment. Uh, Another great musician. I think uh, so. Some, I feel similar bad for in the, him. In the, in the same class. Well, he's dead. You don't have to worry about him. No, but that's true. But uh. In the same class as the man we're going to talk about today, in fact, which is fun because today's episode is all about the 1986 film Labyrinth. And it's so funny, Dave, because I've just been kind of in my 
in my childhood the last few weeks i just bought a huge lot of gi joes they come today oh and dude this lot is an incredible lot figures vehicles a mix it's just fi- it's just figures okay. for now uh, i mean i have a few guys like there's a few just randos right or and i don't mean that as an insult just random people i've met this guy i met through a gi joe twitter account who retweeted him okay and then i and he's like look at all the stuff i'm gonna put on ebay and i, I just went into his slid into his dms and i was like hey dude i'll buy all that stuff from you without you ever having to go on ebay save yourself so he made animation. me he made me a deal you know he asked he asked me for the money okay what do you ask for and i was like fine you didn't negotiate that was a great deal no nope. negotiating he asked for two thousand dollars okay this collection i think is very much worth that like he he hit me with a number that was so fair based on what i know about gi joe valuations yeah that i was like this is perfect for everybody oh so it's heartbreaking it's like now, a mortgage payment I, yeah it's, know, but it's for, for but people. it's awesome because here's what it has okay okay amongst other it has just a bunch of one-offs complete which is great yeah. you know firefly complete all this kind of stuff huge but it has like four vipers complete nice and like two or three cobra officers complete true and those are really expensive and rare figures like i was talking to my consigliere my gi joe consigliere mike and getting advice from him yeah, yeah. and he oh, was like dude awesome. those four or five figures might be like a quarter of the value of that entire lot Just- mike from philly this is yeah, Mike yeah, from Philly, yeah, who okay. you know, right? Yeah, good guy. I don't, I don't want to say his last name. I no, no, no. Want that out there, but yeah, he's a good guy. And so I was, I was consulting with him. I was consulting with my friend Kenny, who owns a toy shop, and my friend Kenny's the one who I'm sending all of the PS2 and Xbox games to. And that's the other thing I wanted to say is that I am going through these PS2 and Xbox games in my garage, dude. I have, I, I think there's a couple more boxes to go through, but we're talking like 700 PS2 games. Holy shit! And then yeah, like set like 700 of them, and then probably more xbox games and i was thinking this has to be a fairly complete collection of xbox games so what i've been doing is i've just been taking each out of the box opening it wiping it down okay. wiping the outside of the case down opening it to see what's inside i go on a google doc or a google sheet and i write down what the game is and then the condition of it so like if it's just a, if it's just oh, a fair shit. fine good or whatever condition i just put the name in okay if it has no book i put no book if it's a greatest hits you know like the red banner which right. everyone hates it's like the G, i put gh <laughs> in the banner in the um in the parentheses and all that, just so he knows exactly what's there. And I'm going through this list and I'm like, holy shit. That's insane. There's just so many games. And so what am I going to do with all these? Trade them for they're more out? GI Joes. Yep, they're out. Now I'm going to send you a list. Okay. Of everything. So I've pulled out a few choice items for you already. Okay. Wow. Really? Thank you. Yeah. I, well, I, first of all, you wanted a Mark II Genesis or a Mark I? No, Mark I. I have okay, one, but so I, I have want a, a backup. Okay. So I have a Mark I Genesis for you. That's no problem. Nice. I also have a few more NES cards and 64 cards and some such that I want to give you. But once I get all this Xbox and PlayStation 2 stuff, I'm going to. And, and by the way, I've, I pulled out all of the unopened games. There's a ton of unopened games. I pulled out all the imports that I'll send to you. Okay. Some fighting game imports. Like, a, I think an import of SNK versus Capcom in there. Oh, like a bunch of nice. Stuff. Oh, I was going to ask about those. And then, yeah, there's a bunch of the fighting games in there. I mean, there's a bunch of shit in there, too. But it's just it's just there's a lot of just random stuff. And so when I get these documents together, I'm going to just send them to you and then you can just pick out whatever you want. I'll box all of that together with the Genesis and all the other cartridge stuff we have for you because there's a few other things we missed. I'll send that to you and then we're going to send all of the other, it's going to be probably 10 boxes, probably 1,500 games Holy or more shit. to this guy, Kenny. And then he's going to hold it for future considerations. That's what I told him. I, I, like, like a sports deal. I'm like, I'm going to send these to you now. You have the room to hold them. I really don't have any room for these. And then for future considerations. I'll very smart. Dude, that's yeah. very, very intelligent. 
and gives you something to look forward to. And also, thank you. That's huge. V- perfect. I mean, PlayStation Two are perfect for a knockback. We have, we have, some, and we have some, we have some PS Two games coming up for knockback. Yeah, Dude, that's exciting. Well, that's really yeah. now. Any heartbreaks in there, and going through the cases and opening up and finding the discs, like anything missing that seems like a you know a valuable or rare game. Disc isn't in there, where you got a shitty disc in there or whatever. Yeah, not the. Uh, so I gotta say, and I told him this too. Like I didn't take every disc out of the box, so. Like I did what I would do, like it was, you know, like when there's a conveyor belt, you know, and you just take samples to make sure it's OK. Absolutely. And like everything seems OK. I, I, I saw a few that were like, I don't. But I remember PS1, PS2, Xbox games. They kind of worked as long as they weren't like groove scratched in some way where you can feel it. Of so I, I never really had any problems with that. So, good, good. yeah, no, no true heartbreaks. But yeah, every once in a while you'd open a case. You can just feel it, you know, like, oh, there's not even a disc in this or there's not a book in this or whatever. You can feel the weight. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's so funny to kind of go through. Games just don't come with booklets anymore, with very rare exception. They don't even come with anything. So it's cool to just go through a generation where everything, even the worst shovelware shit on PS2 had like a 50 page manual in it or whatever. It was, it was pretty incredible. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And then I'm just really in my in my in my mind with G.I. Joe and just sorting through everything. I have everything like laid out on my kitchen table because I just I need to start cataloging this stuff. Like I just again, my consigliere told me he's like, you would just have so much stuff. You need to stop buying now and just figure out what you have because you're just you're just buying things yeah catalog and then you could kind of then you could kind of cherry pick now kyle let me ask you real quick and for the listeners out there are the landscapers coming through the mic because i told helene before i start recording they're not even supposed to come today i said they are going to wait for me to start recording and then they're just going to come and they did i don't hear it i don't okay good ben's Ben's pretty good at these mics are directional very nice shore mics they are directional so they're pretty good about that no 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 worries there all right good 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 okay but yeah, so it's just it's funny to be in this space right now. And the reason I bring all that up as we segue into the topic of Labyrinth is because this is all from the same era. And for me, invokes some sort of similar wonder. And going back, I, we just randomly kind of pulled this one out of the ether recently because I was like, why haven't we done this yet? <laughs> and we are we're giving ourselves a little more time because I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is coming up. And then, yes, we'll do Battlestar Season 3 and a bunch of other stuff. So we have things to get through. And so Labyrinth kind of bought us a little bit of time, but in sitting down for the first time and I don't know, man, probably since college watching this movie, this movie that was very important to me, I was talking to Micah. She had never seen it. And I was like, this isn't probably a top 10 movie for me. And I came out of it being like, yeah, this is a top 10. Wow. Now, this is this is a movie that has a few problems. I think it's a little long, which is funny because it's not that long. It's it's like, you know, an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes long. I think you could have cut five or 10 minutes out of it. I think it drags towards the end a little bit. But this is a really remarkable movie. And you know what I want to I'm so excited to talk about this with you, Dig, for so many reasons is because the way I described it to Micah and and we were talking about it afterwards as well and, and reflecting on it was I was like, there's something creative around every corner in this film. There's some creative choice that was made, some character that was built, some set piece some angle of of shots practical effects clever dialogue around every corner there, there's something new to astonish you and make you laugh and bring you joy and maybe horror or terror or whatever the case might be some feeling around every corner and this movie is remarkable for that and i'm just kind of curious what you take out of this movie and what 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 going back to it was like for you because I know it is a crazy fucking movie. Absolutely. I, I I think it's I think it's authentically special. I don't know. I know that people my age really often think that. I don't know how younger people think about that. We'll talk about all of this, but 
yeah, what do you make of Labyrinth? I mean, it is kind of odd approaching 200 episodes, whatever episode we're on now that we haven't done it yet, knowing how special this movie to you, you know, this how special this movie was to you as a, as a kid. But there's so much to say about this movie. It seems odd. Like I always think of it, I always think of this movie in the same breath amongst, you know, that pantheon of iconic 1980s movies. I think of The Dark Crystal. I think of The NeverEnding Story. I think of this film. I think of things like Goonies and Gremlins and Critters and stuff like that. I just think of those. There's the iconic 80s movies that were huge, very popular for their time, blockbustery things like The Karate Kid and Ghostbusters. And then there's this other wave of oftentimes fantasy movies, oftentimes puppet-based. And I always think of this movie amongst those movies. And a movie that I think could only be a product of the 1980s for several reasons, really. And we'll delve into all of that, I'm sure. And I think it's also fascinating for some other reasons, like seeing what George Lucas was getting up to in the mid-80s post the initial Star Wars trilogy. And of course, an epic collaboration between two of pop culture's most massive creative titans, both at the height of their powers, actually. And throw in one of the biggest, most important rock stars the universe has ever known, right? Throw that into the stew. And now the conversation is getting exceptionally interesting. But for me, really what it all boils down to, what we really need to talk about here, Kyle, of course, is your almost perverse obsession with this film as a kid. So please explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So it's true. I was thinking about this because I was obsessed with this movie. For some reason, I was really trying to examine it last night. I was trying to watch it through like a more critical eye. I was trying to watch it with a tether to the past and trying to figure out what was it about this movie that spoke to me? What was it? And I kind of picked out a few things. It's literary in some way. I've always been really attracted to books and make-believe and things that are fake, right? Now, this is, of course, a given with a lot of fiction, but this movie really encapsulates a literal storybook world. It's about a girl who is reading a book who's getting transported into a story through literature. And I was always really attracted to that. I also feel like one of the things that attracted to me attracted it to me subconsciously, and I actually don't know where a lot of it was filmed, is that it seems like it's New England. I mean, it just, it feels homey, to me, it feels almost like New York or Pennsylvania, Ohio, something familiar to us. I think that was one of the things that was really great to me. And you know what I pulled out? And I don't know which came first. This is a, a chicken or the egg. There's serious Castlevania vibes in this. And I know that that comes up in passing sometimes, but I don't know that that series has ever come up materially outside of our discussions with Castlevania games themselves or platforms that ran those games. And I realized that, in fact, the, the movie is a video game. It's full of NPCs and boss battles and investigation and exploration. So it's hard to say what's what. But the reason I wanted to bring in G.I. Joe into this conversation and bring and start with that was because I don't remember anything invoking a spirit of play and joy in me like Labyrinth did when I was a kid. And I realized that the further the movie went along, the less I remembered it, like the less I remembered the specific That's aspects of it. Because I think I was getting so inspired and excited to go do something when I, similar to the conversations you've been having recently that I went off and I was like, well, this is the way it's going to be. And I'm going to play with my blocks or I'm going to go into the woods. And so I would only get halfway through the movie mo most of the time. But you're right. I was and I didn't know if anyone really remembered that about me, that I was real. I really was obsessed with this film. 
But the thing is, is that it's not like those other weird movies that I've watched, like, you know, kids watch when they're kid or children and you go back and you're like, what the fuck is this? I, I feel that way a lot about cartoons and, and stuff like that. I really feel like this is almost someone identifying some, something pretty high culture in a lot of ways. David Bowie's performance is awesome. Oh, my God. I think so Jennifer Connelly is great in this as well. She is. There's a lot of interesting cinematography i had never noticed because i was too young there's a lot of hints in her bedroom i even didn't even notice when i was a kid about things that would come forth in the movie and there's an awesome camera angle for instance of these rocks that make jareth's face and i never even realized that like there's and then they move the angle quickly and it's it's off of it there's just and just i even noticed immediately like wow they really put glitter in everything and and the camera just constantly caught it and it just looks mystical and and moist and yeah, it does like something weird about it. So what do you, I, I'm curious, what is your remembrance of this film as a child? I, well, not as a child, as a teenager. And I guess it seems like you have some memory of me being obsessed with this movie. Oh, my God. I remember you watching this at length. Now, you must have had it on VHS, I'm assuming. Right? Yeah, That's, I think we did. Yeah, I remember yeah. it being on a lot. It's amazing how much it was on. You know, I was. It's important to say I was 12 years old going on 13 when this came out. You were a year and a half old. You would be two later that year because it came out in June of 86, I believe. Um, so you were really young. So you discovered it just a little later, you know, right, right in time for it to arrive on video, I'm sure. And I remember it, you know, being like a preteen, tween age, like I was distracted with whatever I was doing, friends, starting to skateboard, all that kind of stuff. But I remember this being on a lot as I was running around doing my various things. And I, I'm not sure, although I was so subject to this movie as a kid, it was on a lot. I'm not sure like if I ever really sat down to watch it, maybe with the exception of one time. So there was actually, like you said, a lot of parts I didn't remember. But I remember this being on in the background at length as a, as a young kid because of you. And you said so many interesting things already, Kyle. There's a couple of things I want to I address with what you said. First of all, I didn't either I forgot or I didn't realize this was – uh, Japan only Famicom game was made out of this movie. Never NES era, but only you know stayed in Japan on the Famicom. It's an RPG, very interesting. I have to get that for you. Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't think I even knew that. Yeah, super yeah. cool. It looks it actually looks super cool. It looks like the menus and everything are in English. Interestingly enough, looks a little confusing. They must have localized it, and then for some, they must have localized it and just figured it wouldn't do here. Maybe due to the you know that it it really didn't have a successful theatrical run and all of that. Also, I like what you talked about. I was talk I watched this with uh, this movie with Helene and Graydon a couple of nights ago. Graydon fell asleep about 15 minutes in. I was really kind of keen for the kids to sit down and watch this movie. Like a lot of 80s movies, I feel like this is one of the last ones they haven't watched. Also, the 80s movie that Helene is obsessed with, kind of your labyrinth, is her legend. The kids haven't seen that one yet either, interestingly enough. But most of them they've seen. So I was keen to kind of sit them down and watch this because it really is emblematic of the 80s and strangely kind of beholden to that specific decade, I think. And I think it's just interesting for the kids to watch stuff like that. They, they could never make this movie today. There's so much to, that, that we'll say about that. But Graydon fell asleep. So Helene and I were stuck, you know, watching it. We enjoyed it together and we were sort of waxing nostalgic. And we were talking about in the beginning of the movie – it looked to me like that atmosphere. It's interesting that you said New England because it looked to me like it could have been the Pacific Northwest. Oh, like, like Goonies. Like the Goonies. Like the Goonies. Very similar. Right. It could have been yeah. the same town as the Goonies. Like, you know, right. sort of Seattle, Portland, maybe Northern California yeah. even, which makes sense when you think of George Lucas's ties to everything and everything like that sure. could have been. Who knows? I don't know. I didn't investigate that. 
And I love hearing that the literary connection for you because it is very sort of reminiscent of Alice in Wonderland. Also, The NeverEnding Story, which is about a kid who's kind of sort of a bookish kid who gets wrapped up in this fantasy story. So that was interesting. And I love hearing how it captured your imagination. For me, I was wondering last night as you watched it, I had those movies growing up that I was obsessed with in the 80s that disturbed me and scared me a little bit. I think about Watership Down. I think, think about even things like The Last Unicorn, certainly Poltergeist, which we've talked about on the show a lot, which part of my obsession came through the fear that it ignited in me. The fact that it seemed a little forbidden, it seemed like I shouldn't be watching it, it kind of scared the shit out of me a little bit. Did this movie have any of that for you or was it purely like something that was joyful and captured your imagination and kind of ignited your creativity and made you want to go out and have adventures? You know, which one was it for you? I think it's maybe a fusion of both. I feel like when you're a kid, maybe maybe just for me and, and probably for you, you're kind of attracted to these things that you kind of have to watch out of one eye sometimes or you know the bad parts coming. This reminded me a lot of L Large Margin. Yes. Uh, Pee-wee. I was well horrified said. of that scene. Oh, you know, that terrifying. was famous in our family. Like everyone knew I was fucking horrified of that scene. I was and, too. Yeah. And, it's, really and like we, we would, when we would rent it, I don't think we owned it. Maybe we did. But when we, whenever I'd watch it, we would just fast forward Dana or whatever who would fast forward that. And so to me, Labyrinth is so special because it, it's not quite like Willy Wonka where like, I don't find Willy Wonka unsettling like other people do. I find it pure comedy and like brilliance and just making fun of things. And ridiculousness labyrinth is a little bit it's in the same sphere to me of why these movies are great but labyrinth is a little darker i also think in some way it's a it's about letting go of childhood so yes that's exactly. that's difficult and I, I certainly only got that in the last viewing because i certainly wasn't watching that during the my formidable years i certainly wasn't getting all the fucking allegory and shit in the, in the movie so and, that, and that's the other thing I, I walked away from was I was like, this is actually funny and quite enjoyable from an adult point of view. I actually think this movie is great. And you're right. The movie did. It bombed at the box office. It made like half of its of its yeah. budget. It, it yeah. wasn't until later that I think this is one of the many movies where VHS assisted it in a lot of a lot of ways. Lots of movies in the 80s and 90s were assisted by uh, and, and brought into greatness and cult classic status. So you think about Kevin Smith and all of his shit, for instance, like that all circulated because of VHS. By the way, I looked it up. Nyack, New York is where it was filmed. Oh, nice. Okay, so you were right. So you were close. You were much closer. I mean, is upstate New York considered New England? I mean, it's certainly No, no, like, no. I was just thinking like a more of a, yeah, it's not, but more of a, nor a Northeast. Northeast, sort of that's interesting. Where Jennifer feel. Connelly's from, actually, too. We'll talk about that. Interesting. It is funny, though, that the, Anthony wrote into us about this on Patreon. We got a lot of questions. And remember, of course, you can... Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas on our threads on Patreon. You vote on topics as well, etc. We appreciate your support over there. Thank you. He says, hi, bros. First off, I love this movie. So many memories of watching it with my sister when we were kids, but also memories of being quite young watching it and feeling really quite frightened at the start of the movie. It literally starts like it's going to be a horror in some ways. It kind of is, right? So my question is to you, what is it? I mean, the subject is horrifying, obvious elements of fantasy. You could call it a movie about a sexual predator who kidnaps a baby and spends the rest of the time teasing the baby's sister while making pretty strong advances towards the seemingly underage teenage girl. Why do we like it again? So I do wonder, Dave, just from a just from a philosophical point of view, you said you just watched. it. I mean, what did you walk away from the movie being about experientially? Like, what is it? Is it just a movie that's trying to bring joy or 90 minutes of storytelling into your life? Or is it trying to 
bury something else inside of you because I, I did learn or not learn, but just felt a different way about the outcome of the film and actually felt that even though I think the movie's a little long, I also longed for some sort of closure with the parents at the end. Yeah. Like the mom, the stepmom and the dad and her, she's putting things away in her desk. And I just feel like they should, they could have lingered on that more, making it seem like as if from my point of view, it's maybe not as important as the spectacle of the movie itself. So I'm just curious, like what you make of like what this film is even about, because it is crazy. Like it is a, it's totally nuts. It's nuts. and it's very dreamlike in the fact that, you know, the, the great thing about dreams that I re- I think I've been saying I've been reading a lot about dream, not like what they mean, but like why we're dreaming and what people think and scientists and philosophers and stuff. And they say that one of the great and interesting things about dreams is that nothing that happens in the dream is unbelievable to you. You kind of go with it. And very rarely you get knocked out of a dream because you get really scared or whatever the case might be. But you see something and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm being I'm just going with this ethereal shit situation i'm in and that's kind of the way jennifer's jennifer connelly's sarah goes along with it as well which makes it fun because it doesn't really get bogged down into anything that's that doesn't matter i don't have any idea where this place is i don't give a shit i was making michael laugh because i was like what is the goblin like economy who's making their (laughs) who's blacksmithing (laughs) their like what kind of how did jareth become in charge of these this place it just you can it's funny to ask those questions but it doesn't matter and so yeah, what did you what do you think about that whole the whole aspect of the dreamlike nature of it that she just kind of understands what what's going on and goes with it and that's what makes the movie fun. It's such a good point, man. It's you could almost expect this adventure to be her waking up from a dream at the end. It does kind of flow that way. It doesn't seem to be beholden to any rules. Anything could happen, anything does happen. I feel it's so funny, man. For a movie that's like a buck forty, I feel like I could talk about this for nine hours. Just how Definitely. odd this is, and Definitely. again, a pro, very much a product of the '80s. You know, whether that's just sure create sheer creativity or weirdness or whatever Jim Henson wanted to do creatively, what he was feeling like he wanted to jump out and evolve, you know, in a creative way, or whether it's beholden to you know drugs, whatever you want to say, or all of that's a part of the conversation. Who knows? But feels very much like an Alice in Wonderland adventure again, where it's it's very odd, very surreal. Anything can happen. You jump right in. There's very little exposition or explanation for what's going on. You have to kind of glean and ascertain things. Even as an adult, it's kind of hard. Like, And you get little smatterings of that in the beginning of the movie. You know, You know Jennifer Connelly, Sarah, is sort of like a kid that's growing up, I think she's supposed to be 15 or 16 years old, sort of in the throes of holding on to childhood, sort of an 80s iteration of a cosplayer, right? She's into like sort of acting out her little fantasy story. She's got her book with her. She's dressing up in her costumes. She's got her plushies, her fantasy stuffed animals still in her room. Her room seems like it could still be a holdover from, you know, being six, seven, eight years old. And sort of this character... You know, you get sort of this character growing up, but kind of lashing, lashing against growing up, right? The mom makes a brief mention of like, you know, I didn't know you had plans tonight. You should be dating. You're old enough to date. You should, you should be going out on a date, whatever. They seem to give you, and who knows what came out or got cut out in the editing room floor, right? But you get a little bit of that, of that story or that backstory or that foundation of like, here's a character, a kid growing up. And then she's like bratty, impetuous. I guess, prototypical bratty 16-year-old. And 
she's aggravated. She has to baby, babysit her infant brother or infant stepbrother, half brother or whatever, and then wishes him away by this goblin king thing that she knows about that we could ascertain she knows about from her fairy tales that she's into and sort of asks the goblin king to come and rid her of this nuisance. And there's, and the story just springs from there, you know? And I think a lot of it is a very typical 80s formula. You have a story buoyed by creative masterminds like George Lucas, who exec produced and did some of the screenplay. And of course, Jim Henson sort of anchoring the entire thing. And David Bowie, who's like the closest person I could think to a real life magical human being slash Definitely. sorcerer. I mean, that's what he is. I mean, in real life, that's what he is. You know, talk about his personas and his Ziggy Stardusts and all that kind of stuff. But he's the, he's the closest proxy I could think of to a magical human being. And he's really the one sort of, you know, plugging, you know, holding the water for this whole project. And you could do that in the 80s. And you could it would just come out as enter- confusing maybe, hard to articulate after the fact, but just through and through entertaining. And I think that's what makes this and the other things we talked about, Dark Crystal, NeverEnding Story, so on and so forth. I think that's what makes these things so special is that you couldn't do that now. People would demand exposition. They would demand backstory. You, they would be you know, frying it and grilling it and flaming it on the internet. Back then, you could do things like this. And I think a big part of it, too, and we could get into this more when we talk about the puppets and the creativity and the art direction and the Jim Henson's and the Brian Froud's and everything, is that I think a lot of it is the evolution of where Jim Henson wanted to go. We saw that first with the Dark Crystal. You know, you know, Jim Henson goes back to the late 60s using puppeteering and puppets as a storytelling medium, short form. You know, in advertising and episodic television, Sesame Street, The Muppet Show, he evolved, his sort of empire evolved into, you know, illustration, into art, into long form theatrical stuff with the Muppet movies. He did, he found success in that. And I think the next logical progression is he wanted to do something that was more intricate, more detailed, more complex. And I think tell story, also probably inspired by fantasy in general, and then also wanted to tell stories for older audiences. It's older kids slash adults, and that's where we get the dark crystals and the and the labyrinths from. So a, a, a big part of this engine was Jim Henson sort of taking his thing to the next level and wanting to do more, essentially with puppets. So that and you know that's a big part of the conversation. And already and George Lucas being involved, already having that touchstone with Frank Oz doing Yoda and Empire and Jedi. So those two sort of con, you know creative conglomerates were already interwoven. So it makes sense that they would be doing things together. And, you know, coming out of the 80s with Star Wars and Indiana Jones was still going on. Temple of Doom was only a couple of years before. So again, sort of I think of these things all sort of intermeshed, you know, and all of these creative, all of these genius creatives intermeshed in this in this decade. Which is a bit, you know, that's also a big part of this conversation. Probably them wanting to work together, you know, is a is another sure. thing that came out of this too. And then you just add David Bowie and it's the icing on the cake. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, Thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it 
I've I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. I love David Bowie's performance in this. And I guess we can really start here. Edwin and Magana wrote in and said, hey guys, I just rewatched this movie the other night. Still amazing. But I'm now traumatized from all that Jareth crotch magic on screen. The director stated it was purposeful. How and why? Thanks for all the awesome content, guys. Love the show. So obviously the cod piece is the central thing that everyone always wants to talk about with David Bowie. Can't and that's totally it. fine. And we can get into that because I don't understand why it had to be so, so prominent. So weird. And it's very strange and very weird indeed. But one of the things I noticed about him is that he he's not on screen very much. No. And I think that's part of what makes it so special. I love when he shows up in the beginning, you see his silhouette with his mullet and all that kind of stuff. And he's what's said is said. <laughs> <laughs> you got a good impression going on. I don't know if it's Thank David you. Bowie or Labyrinth David Bowie, but you got it. What's said it. is said. Yeah, you. Well, I'll, I'll bring it up here. I don't know if people are going to be able to hear it, but I sent this to Dagan yesterday. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's a clip it's a clip from the movie i mean that's it's what a, that it's sounds totally like. uh, this is what made me into a david bowie fan now i came to david bowie's music later and i love david bowie's music not so much the ziggy era but i i love a lot of the pop 80s stuff he was doing and of course he is greatly missed he, he passed away five years ago now it's uh, kind of crazy to think about so sad but his appearances in the in the movie have so much gravitas because really all we ever see is jennifer Connolly. so when he appears, it's a moment. And it fe- again, this comes back to the Castlevania connection for me. It feels very Dracula. Like he is an owl instead of a bat, but it's a lot of, you know, moon imagery. And he's like got all this magic and he's manipulating time. I love his use of those crystals. And I love when he points at the clock and he's like, you know, 13 hour, you know, 13, the clock with 30. I always think like, I got to get a 13 hour clock like that. Great idea. I'm sure they, I'm sure they make one like that. They but, must. They have to. And, and then like later in the movie when he like cheats and he just points at the clock and it and it just goes back like forward a few hours. I'm like, this is so cool. He's so cool. And he keeps throwing the crystals and they it create like a monster or whatever. It's very video game like. And he's amazing. I, I look at him and I'm like, who else but him? It's very similar again to Willy Wonka when we think about that, where it's like, who else but Gene Wilder could possibly play this role? We learned that the answer is no one. And I feel like the same answer could be said here where it, it's just it's a, like you said place time synthesis of different talents and of course he brings to bear his great musical talent and i was surprised more than anything i was like well, there's not too much music because there's a whole score that's written by someone else I'm like there's not too much 
in here, but the songs for the most part are quite memorable and vast in terms of David Bowie's stylings. And of course, Dance Magic is is the greatest oh of them God. all. So good. But I just I really dig everything about David Bowie's performance. And he's so gravitational and so attractive in this movie to me. I was saying at one point to Mike, I'm like, who's wearing more lipstick in this scene, Jennifer Connelly or David Bowie? Oh, that's easy. Yeah. How dare so, you? So, uh, yeah, what did you make about his, What do you make about David Bowie in this movie? I mean, where do you even start with David Bowie? You know what I was thinking of? We did an episode, Christopher Nolan's Prestige, not too long ago. Right, and, he, and yeah, so we talked about him there. Yeah, and we talked about Christopher Nolan, this iconic filmmaker, one of the most important filmmakers contemporarily, and going after how he went after David Bowie to play Nikola Tesla in that film, and how... You understood it from Christopher Nolan's point of view. I mean, you have this one-of-a-kind, force-of-nature character, real-life man, sorcerer, magician, whatever he is, in David Bowie. And he is. He does have a very – it's well said, Kyle. He has a very Gene Wilder, you know, as Willy Wonka thing where it's like you cannot even imagine somebody else playing this role. He's just got that. I love the Dracula connection. You know, even down to the fangs, everything you said, even down to the fangs, having, you know, hordes of lackeys and, you know, the whole thing with dra- the magic turning into a bird, like the whole thing is so cool. Yeah, the castle and the creatures. The castle, and yeah, a, yeah. the atmosphere, just the overall sort of, um, you know, how he's this, you know, he's this kind of, uh, he's he's an evil dude, but he's got that charm and that charisma, you know. And I mean, where do you even start with David Bowie's performance? It's so good. I love what you said about him not having enough screen time. You miss him when he's off the screen. You know, he's got he's got that sort of level of gravitas. And there's something just even in going back that I was thinking about this movie, as far as it being a quote unquote kids movie, I feel like that's going to be the quote of the podcast, right? The quote unquote kids movie, because you have this film. First of all, you have to get through the very self-indulgent. 35 minute opening title sequence that had to be ILM with the CG owl flying in and out. It's very enjoyable because it's, it's very beholden to the eighties, but it's a, you know, it's a real show offy piece of eye candy. You get through that. And then even through, even in the throws, even in the voiceover song and the opening titles, you get, you know, the fact of hurts like hell. He says that a couple of times you get the main character, this young girl saying, damn, you get, I think in the first five minutes, you get one of the main puppet characters peeing into a pond. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very, very odd. There's a lot of things that are seem like unnecessarily adult. But you could have done anything there. You know, you have this character, this Hoggle character, peeing into a pond from the back, and then did, adjusting did you, himself and zipping up. Right. And, did you notice later in the movie, too, that there are, like, there are these goblin statues that like all have their dicks or all pipes? Helene pointed that out to me. Yeah, She kept saying in that one, I think, Sir Didymus sequence where he's fighting all the enemy knights or whatever, yeah. she she kept pointing it out and I wasn't paying attention. I had to go back and rewind it. But yeah, absolutely. It's very phallic. And then, definitely, of course, that whole conversation culminates in David Bowie's armadillo. I mean, dude, what? Like, you couldn't just give him a costuming bit, like a, a giant belt buckle or something that wrapped around the front. Like, the fact of like... This very rock star, you think of like Spinal Tap, right? Type thing, right? Like it's front and center. It's it, it's cliched now almost to talk about, but you have to talk about it because it's such an odd choice, and it's so unapologetic. It's so unapologetically eighties, 
that you would even have that, you know, that you could even do those odd things. It's just a weird, you talked earlier about all the thoughtful touches when it comes to the, the costuming and the sets and the cinematography, and of course the puppets and the intricacies of movement. But that's another thing that's like so emblematic and it had to be a thoughtful thing. Like they had to put thought into why we're doing this, just like everything else. These are master filmmakers we're talking about here. You know, every, everybody from Jim and Brian Henson to Kevin Clash, pre-Elmo, doing the puppeteering, Frank Oz, yeah, George Lucas, yeah. all these people, right? Like all these iconic players, David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, like she would go on to win an Oscar. Like these are not these are not bit players. This is a, this is an important production. Like all of these were very purposeful choices, including David Bowie's member. Like it's so yeah, it's, weird, dude. It's so it's, strange. No, it is weird. And it's incredible. And I, I, it's funny because as a kid, you notice it, but because I was a kid at the time that the movie came out, like I was watching it contemporaneous to its launch. And around that time, it kind of seemed like everything else I was seeing. You know, I remember not thinking too deeply about it. I knew I knew then that it was funny, but it I was like, oh, this is like a Van Halen. I see this on like MTV. I, I, this is, I guess, just the way it is. And and you kind of walk away with that. But it it is strange. And I agree. I, I think that in longing for David Bowie and the scenes that he's in, I really liked actually I remember kind of being bored by it as a kid, but I, I really liked the the masquerade ball scene. I think that's actually really cool. And I remember being kind of bored by that. Like and just wanting to get through the movie at that point. I was going to ask you about that as a kid because yeah. it's very eighty, and I don't mean this to sound the wrong way, but think about especially harkening back to the eighties, right? You think about a very eighties centric, seemingly girlish scene where they're dancing. There's romance. It's a masquerade ball. Even the way it's lit and glittery and everything like that. And I think about a young boy watching that. And it seems like, yeah, it seems like that's the fast forward part of the movie for, you know, I would think most kids of that era. I think it's a little different now. But back then, you know, you talk about 35 years ago. It's a long time yeah, ago. Definitely. So, yeah. So that's interesting that you say that. I, I was wondering about that with you. Let me ask you this thing, because yeah. uh, we, we can get into this in earnest, I guess. And, and Travis Binkley wrote in about it. He says, holy cod piece. Good day, guys. This movie was so inspirational to me and my brother from the worm to the doorknobs to the spears with ass munching critters and the creepy, creepy homeless lady. What are your favorite creatures in this movie? So I thought we would go through and, and kind of talk about some of these. Creatures. Sure. There's actually even just on the Labyrinth Wiki, I, I noticed today when I was going over my notes, there's a list that seems to kind of introduce them in some sort of order, but I have them on my list as well. And the first creature that we encounter is Hoggle. And you brought up Hoggle earlier you know he's peeing and he's obviously a liar he's a backstabber and i'm wondering what you think of this character he's he's a very memorable character his voice and the way it's said i think it was um i think it's brian henson that played him his voice it's very interesting because and i guess he might have played the puppet too you know um however they did it but i don't know I, i'm wondering what you think of this hoggle kind of a companion character that is kind of, you know what it reminded me of a little bit is Cecil and Kane in in Final Fantasy 4 where this character is kind of your friend but kind of not and then betrays you and disappears and then comes back and you don't know if you can trust him and on and on and on and then ends up being like an Good essential point. part of of saving things in the end so I got another video game connection but what do you make of Hoggle really interesting because when you think about it one of the main characters is a puppet 
you know, slash animatronic. I think this character visually is still pretty stunning. I mean, talk about something holding up after almost 40 years. I was really impressed by the way they handled this character. Off-putting aesthetically, like his look, you know, he looks like a, a shriveled up old man, this, this goblin who has this gin blossom. Again, very 80s and thinking like this would appeal to kids, but somehow oddly it is appealing. And I was noticing, I, w- I went in last night and watched The Making of Labyrinth, which I've never seen before, which is about an hour long sort of behind the scenes thing. You get a little texture to the making of this beast. But one thing I didn't realize was this character was controlled by five people. You had the little person. I'm not going to say dwarf. I'm going to say dwarf, but we'll just stick with the little person. She played inside the suit. So she was responsible for all the physicality, jumping around, running around, all the hand gesturing. And then Brian Henson and his sort of stable were each responsible for a different thing. Somebody was responsible for the eyes. I think Brian Henson might have been responsible for the mouth and the lip sync and the dialogue. Very, very tricky because they all had to act as one. It's really like a puppeteering is really like a dance. You know, you really have to have a rhythm. You're a dancer. And when you're collaborating on one character like that, it's very impressive. And I noticed even before watching the making of it, that his eye lines were very impressive. He was always looking where he's supposed to be. There was a lot of nuance to the facial acting. And again, that's all puppeteering, maybe a little marionette work, which I noticed they did a lot of stuff from the rafters for this movie. I'm not sure about this character specifically. And then what other, whatever animatronic rigs they had to do you know, the facial tics and the, the brows, the eye ridges, the eye line, the pupils, and the mouth which is really crazy. Like one person would be responsible just for one brow section to get that emotion, to get that character emoting. It's incredible. Dude, it holds up so well. Like that character specifically really, really holds up. It's masterful stuff. Yeah, it it reminds me of, we talked about Yoda and Frank Oz, obviously, but also Jabba the Hutt and Return of the Jedi that required, I think, multiple people to work him as well. And obviously they were able to hide that a lot better. He's, he's, a blobby mess but it does it does it does hold up and when you look at Jabba the Hutt in CG and like episode one and you look at Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi he looks way better in Return of the Jedi and I agree so I I am I remained so impressed with the work they did in this and, so and really it shows me that like why would you ever do it any other way that that was even today with all of the you would think that the very man who has helped produce this movie, George Lucas, who later learned the painful lesson 15 years later that you can't rely on your obsession with technology and it's just too much. And you would think maybe there would be a rubber band effect where people would look at a movie like this and say, like, this looks awesome. Or we, we, again, we t- keep talking about Willy Wonka where this just looks great. And there's no trick because there's no trick. Right. Other than just the, the artistry on the screen and puppeteering and all of that. So I'm totally with you on that. I also had to give a shout out and we see them a lot. We see them in the very beginning. Actually, they're the first supernatural thing we see in the movie are the various goblins. And I love that that scene where you first they first shoot through the goblins and they're all just like looking ahead and talking to each so other. So good. It's brilliant. And this is it was what I began when I started writing my notes saying it's like a mo- like you can tell that there's a lot of creative people involved and they have all of these moments, all of these creatures and ideas that they want to bring up. And this was one of them. And I love the big doofy guys. And like, did she say it yet? And they're all like telling him to do quiet. It's absolutely hysterical and brilliant and charming. And so all of the goblins are really cool too. And I was reading that 
amongst the many goblins in the movie is Warwick Davis and um, Kenny Baker. So oh, that's that was cool. Kind of, yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Not a huge surprise, of course. And for people that don't know, that's Wicket um, and R2-D2 yeah. in Star Wars. And of How, course, that uh, first, I wanted yeah. to ask you about that first yeah. scene where you first see sort of the, with the black matte background and then you see the bunch of goblins and it's, you know, you talk about the surreal nature of this movie, right? And getting away with really weird choices. Like, I think even as a younger kid, I got that they were sort of like, you know, you cut away to this, these goblins. First of all, I love what you said about the monsters, but they have very human personalities. There's very human mm -hmm. interaction there. So I think that sort of dispels some of the scariness because you feel like these guys are goofy. Like they talk to each other like my aunt and uncle or my cousins, you know, they seem very human, although they're grotesque looking, which I think is so fun. But you get a cutaway to like this screen full of goblins and they're just talking, but you kind of just get like they're in this other dimension waiting to break through. It doesn't need to be explained. It's just cool. Yeah. You know, they're just waiting for that barrier to be broken so they could come right. in, you know? Right. And I love that. It's, and it's nothing. It's just a cutaway. That's all it is. You know, the, and then the it cuts back of, yeah. to Jennifer Connelly in her room and then it cuts back to them again reacting. It's just one of those really, th it's, it's, in, it's simple, but it's inventive. And now there would be, I feel like there would be all this CG and all this explanation and exposition where you just have that, again, CG versus in the flesh, practical effects, but also just a simplicity in the storytelling. You know, nothing needs to be complex. You just kind of put it in there and kids get it and they're drawn to it. You know, I could see being really riveted, that of, riveted by that if I was like a younger kid and I wasn't going on my teen years. I could see really being like into that kind of thing. And I think you're right. I think it's going to be a throwback more and more to that sort of storytelling, the practical effects too, but also just that flavor of storytelling where it's like not beholden to all the out of camera editing, CG, digital compositing. It's just going to be more simple. Yeah, I, I agree. And what's so fascinating about it from that perspective that you're talking to uh, talking about too, Dave, is they're none of them are the same so not only did they like not mass produce this shit and then make it cg like you think about the clone troopers or whatever and all of that in or the the battle droids and the new star wars movies or the star wars prequels like they're all the same so you would think like well they're all the same why wouldn't you just make them or something like that's not even that challenging but what they did in this movie and in a lot of movies similarly is that they took the harder choice and then they went all in on it even making the harder choice so it's really impressive when you stop and look at all of them in the throne room, that circular throne room that we see somewhat often where Jareth is. I don't know what the fuck he's doing in there, <laughs> What's but he doing they're, in all, there? They're, they're all partying and hanging out <laughs> and you see them and you look and there's a there's a there's just a whole smorgasbord of them and they're all different. They're all totally different, different wigs, different armor, different items, different head, eye shapes, nose shapes, mouth shapes, body shapes. It's incredible. I, I don't. I understand why there would be movies that would be afraid of doing that, but look at the outcome of doing the harder thing. I'm not saying that CG is easy. It's not, but it's a lot harder to, or a lot easier rather to make the CG choice and say like, oh yeah, we'll also have a bunch of different models because we can just model them all and it won't even matter. Someone had to build these and then puppeteer them and voice them. And it's quite, it's quite incredible. So I wanted to give a shout out to the goblins because they are kind of like the stormtroopers of the, like where there's there we don't even know who any of them really are yeah like that. yeah yeah good point. or like the flying monkeys or something you know like they're, they're just like that where they're just there they're like oh, the flying monkeys are awesome we can 
save that for the Wizard of Oz when we get to that. I, I don't know why we haven't done that yet. Either. I know, it's a big one. So I have here next in my notes that I wanted to talk about is the worm. Now, the, I, I note that the worm has no no uh, name. It's just called the worm. This is kind of the first creature that's not Hoggle that we really interact with. And I find it so charming. Like, he keeps trying to invite her inside or whatever, which is so funny. <laughs> what do you make of this character design? I, 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 this is a very attractive character design for me with a little scarf and everything. It's so cute. cute. So cute. And really, again, like you talk about, you know, the handmade nature of this movie and the craft and the toil and everything being fabricated out of rubber and paint and cloth and the sheer amount of creativity and man hours going into this thing. Just to have a, like a little one off character interaction or a scene or a moment in the film. Super charming. I love that, you know, he invites her in to meet the missus and have the cup of tea. Like, how's she going to fit in that little hole in the wall? Again, it's just like, again, it reminds me of Alice in Wonderland, but more charming. You know, more lovable. How you meet you meet these characters? It's like he doesn't seem to have an agenda, like the Cheshire Cat or the hookah smoking caterpillar. He's just, you know, he's just being nice, and he gives and he, and he clues her into a tip. And I love the little, you know, like the holes in the wall. You could go through the wall, like you just can't see the doorway type of thing. And then gives her the exact wrong directions. You know, I love that little moment where he's like, oh, she went the other way. She went right to the castle. Like, that's just funny stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. And it sets it sets a really because I like that whole scene, too, where she's trying to figure out like they do a lot of things I didn't notice as a kid. You know, the backgrounds kind of are beautiful, but it kind of stands out. She's on a set. And I love how they just they use the same corridors in different directions, run her running and trying to figure her way out during this worm scene as she's kind of on the periphery of the labyrinth. I want to ask you this, too, Dick, what? Labyrinths are kind of scary, right? Labyrinths are, there's something sinister about them, right? Like when you, you know, like old Victorian hedgerow labyrinths and all of that, like they're supposed to be fun and men and women would go in there and kind of talk and rope, there would be like a court each other. And, but really, like I always look at these, I'm like, this is horrifying. This is a completely horrifying situation. What do you think about the character of the labyrinth itself? It's one of the, yeah, it really is one of those horrific things. I mean, I'm a claustrophobic, so it's exceptionally scary for me. But I think it's even harkens back. If you think of the labyrinth proper, you think back back to Greek mythology, where right. if you make the wrong turn in the labyrinth, you're going to meet the Minotaur, that type of thing. It's going to be some emblematic danger. Or you think about other works of fiction that are iconic, like The Shining, and that pivotal ending scene where you know the kids lost in the in the hedgerow in the hedge labyrinth or whatever. Even something as simple as a corn maze in like an old seventies or eighties Halloween or Halloween yeah, Children of the type corn. movie. Right. Yeah. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Really, really interesting. One thing, Graydon, before he fell asleep last night, he laughed at that one moment with the caterpillar where he says like, oh, if she went that way, she would have went straight to the castle. And then he started pulling apart. You know, he's kind of got the eye for this kind of stuff. I think Graydon's going to be in some sort of creative arts or some sort of entertainment, commercial art, whatever. But he was saying like, and it reminds me, you're really beholden to this matte painting era. He was like, when you first see, you know, it cuts away and Jareth is like, there, you know, my castle. And you see mm. the the maze and then you see the castle way in the distance. And Graydon's like, you could tell that's like a painting or whatever. And I was, you know, I just want to say, yeah, but it's charming because you're never going to see that again. It's going to be CG and it's going to be right. millions of layers and it's going to take hours to render inside of a computer or a render farm. Like this is like the way it used to be done. And they used to try to like go through pains to make it look real or whatever. But one thing I noticed, and this is me like 
trying to suspend my disbelief is like, oh, she could just walk along the top of those stone right. walls and just get all the way to the castle. Right. Of course. So you always have that only, inner yeah. kid where you're kind of you're kind of dissecting things. Definitely. You know? Definitely. I also note it's funny that in that early scene, what I love that scene too. It's the pink skies. He points at the clock on the tree and like it's so really cool. awesome. It's very I mean, this is fucking Castlevania, like through and through. <laughs> the castle disappears like an owl and all that. Super interesting. But it is funny, like you can tell it's a background, but also like you can in that scene, if you look, you can see some of the folds even in the in the background, like canvas or whatever. And so there's something oh, like it was moving in the air or something like there's some there's something and you can I, I'm not one of these guys that tries to pick apart these films too badly, but I noticed a lot of things I didn't notice when I was a kid, like strings and there's like a, there's like a worm or a spider crawling up a, a cat like a in the Goblin City and like it's just clearly on a string. Like they didn't even try to edit it out. I'm like, this is but it's kind of part of what I agree makes this charming. Yeah, I agree. All right. So the next creatures we encounter from there are the shield twins. And I love these characters as well. They're always supposed to be lying to you and you don't know who's telling. I love the interaction with them. They're guarding these two doors. There's one head upside down and one head above. I like how I think it's the left shield, like one of the feet from the bottom one is just sticking over the shield, <laughs> like laying over the shield. So it's very creative. <laughs> what do you think about these characters as they get towards the oubliette? Super. Oh, the oubliette. We got to talk about that. Yeah. Super, really cool characters. I mean, seriously, like talk about psychedelic drugs. How can you think a lot of this stuff? I'm a creative person. I'm not, I was never really into drugs in any way, but even I have to say like a lot of this stuff is so odd, especially in its time, you know, that you almost think like, really? Like this has to be the product of some sort of psychedelic drug session. It has to be, how can it not be type of thing, you know? So you know, these are one of the, the first kind of characters that we meet. They're like, wow, this is really, really odd. I love how each one is two people. I love how you don't really know you're trying to ascertain the truth, but you really can't. You don't know if they're telling the truth. They're these centuries, but they don't seem very trustworthy. So, and I love the colors. You know, the colors are also really fun. Um, not generally a color, a colorful movie, a little ahead of its time in the fact that like really beholden to like those earth tones and very believable fairy tale fantasy-esque colors but this is a nice splash of color for the movie too. these two characters i like i like that about them yeah me too and i just like their banter this brings us into she makes her choice i like how she thinks she outwits them and she goes into the choice and this is where this, this it's like the pit of hands oh i i really love this and the the this is, brings out this the, the incredible visual creativity of henson and and his cadre because it would have been it's interesting like how they filmed it it's all real hands they're making all these shapes and faces and all of that it's it's amazing as they're as she's falling to the oubliette she asks she says that you know she wants to keep going down so they drop her uh what do you make of that scene that's a very memorable scene to a lot of people oh it's amazing it's so beautiful one of my favorite scenes i mean you think about and they really and they were good about this and you could have made that disturbingly pervy i think that sequence, or at least that struck me that way. It's like this young girl, she's falling down these holes, all these hands groping and stuff like that. But they didn't go there, oddly enough, because they go there a lot in other areas. But right. I love the artistry to it, that it's the puppeteers doing these little hand puppet things. Super impressive even to this day that the way they all got made up in their latex and their hand paint to do it. I thought of one thing, and this also shows, again, a commitment to 
sort of time-consuming processes and doing things the right way. They probably could have done this one-sided and split the camera and mirrored it digitally. I mean, you had the technology to do that at the time, certainly with ILM at your disposal, right? But they didn't. You have, you know, you could have even done that, mirrored it, and then offset it a little bit or staggered the timing by a frame to give it some an organic feel. But instead, they actually did it. You know, they actually performed it the real way, where you have that built-in asymmetry and a little, you know, one hand isn't so perfectly formed as the other hand and stuff like that. And it's so charming and it's so inventive. Like this is one of those inventive touches to the movie beyond the puppeteering, beyond the mastery and what, you know, we know these people are capable of the directing, the acting. It's just like something that's really makes you think of this movie specifically because there's nothing else like it. You know, definitely one of my favorite sequences in the film. I I wish it could have lasted longer. Super cool. So when we're in the oubliette, we see a couple of more creatures that I think are interesting. We see the fossil arms, the faces. I really like those stone faces about how one of them is is sad. Like he's he Hago like yells at him and he's like, I never get to do it, you know. <laughs> Can I just do it? So I always thought that was really charming. And then I really like the the cleaner, the the tunnel robot. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. This is a very video game. This all very video gamey. But before video games really did this, you almost have to wonder if video games took some inspiration from this as well. It's it's very Indiana Jones like as well, with the the rock coming at you. Well said. But what I love about this machine is not only the creativity of it. Two other things. One which I never noticed before. So of course the noticeable thing is they get through the door after the the thing goes, and you realize the goblins are driving it, which is so cool. And we see that again later on. They have all these like mystical magical machines. But the other thing I never noticed, and I'm sure that Labyrinth super fans have noticed it many times, is that there is a hint that this machine exists in Sarah's room. One of the posters on her wall is this machine. Oh, I didn't notice this. And if you go back and look at it, it's pretty cool. So yeah, there's like a there's like a poster of some sort that shows this machine. What? And like and yeah, and so that's pretty cool. What do you think about the whole idea of like this mystical goblin like technology? Like again, no explanation. We were we were getting a little deeper into this when we did Lord of the Rings recently. And talking about like, well, what is the economy of like where the humans are allying with them and there's got to be some sort of deal and and armory and food and farming. And I don't want to get that deep into the goblins here in, in Goblin City or whatever. But what do you think that like they all seem beholden to some reason for Jared? I don't understand. <laughs> I guess I just don't understand what's going on in this machine as cool as it is kind of brings out some of that for me. Oh, it's so cool. I love yeah. kind of meshing the tech with the primitive. I think that's always a cool, thoughtful touch. You know, it's like, and then later on, we'll see that with the giant sort of armored knight robot that it turns out one of the goblins is piloting inside, almost like a Mega Man X type of vehicle, you know? And, you know, it's true too about the boulder, you know, the giant robotic boulder. I was thinking about Hellraiser with the little pinhead. Is it pinhead the character in that? Is this that? Is that uh, no, it's, 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 uh, some, I'll look up real quick here hellraiser character the hellraiser main antagonist dude yeah pinhead that's right pinhead yeah. right yeah, yeah you're but right. it's all it, all it is almost like a raiders of the lost ark boulder meets the ninja turtles technodrome type of thing right mm-hmm. and it's this thing kind of coming down looking to like bowl over its prey it's it's so neat and it was really unexpected because you don't get that sort of techie armored thing in the beginning of the movie you start to get that with the with the boulder and later the night robot but, you know, I, I, again, it just adds to that sort of flavor of the world building. You know, it gets you get that sort of like the goblins, how they operate their world, their tech. 
And the Jarrah thing is really strange, though. I have to say, like, not only why he has all these minions and they're beholden to him, and the fact that he's the Goblin King, although he doesn't look anything like the Goblin, but who knows? Maybe he's taking on that form. You could kind of yeah. I mean, he, it could be magic or something, right? That's yeah. Who, well. who knows? You know. But also, what does he want? With the baby, that's the one pressing question, Jareth question for me. It was like, he almost seems like it's an annoyance for him. You know, he's on his throne and he's sort of pondering. He looks like he's worrying a little bit. You know, he's sort of fretting about something. It's like, what, you know, what is he, what's going on here? Does he, is he in love with the girl? Does he want the baby? Is the baby just sort of like a nuisance? Uh, is it something that he, you know, like once somebody wishes their little sibling away, you know, it has to go to him, even though he may not want it. Like what's going on with this guy? You want to know more? Yeah. I think maybe the answers, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about the book itself, which is a fake book she's reading. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe it's in there. Like there's some sort of motivation we just don't get because she knows that he's got this hunger for that. He can like make wishes, you know, make wishes happen and all this. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It would be interesting to kind of read the book she was reading yeah i know it would be fun for someone to i don't know if that was ever like written or anything but that would be cool another character we meet is i think called the wise man in the script it's the man with the bird hat and uh this is a character that's very very memorable to me it's so stimulating being your hat is like one of my favorite lines (laughs) but this i think frank oz played directly and I love that the the guy just falls asleep and they have like this really horrible relationship with each other. And and uh, do you have any anything to say about this character? You know, it's so funny that you say that sort of like wise guy interaction, the, the wise cracks, the arguing. It's so emblematic. It seems like part of the whole chemistry between Frank Oz and Jim Henson. You think even like Bert and Ernie or Kermit and Miss Piggy, like they seem to have. I think that's what makes their creation so memorable is that humanity that they imbue whether it's a simple puppet like scooter or fozzy or you know cookie monster or some something more complex like one of these fantasy characters and i love the fact that seems to be such a big part of why this stuff works is that you can relate to these very otherwise very odd characters you know they really yoda too it's like you have this odd eccentric jedi master that talks like practically in tongues or he says everything backwards like but for some reason there's a there's a humanity there's there's a heart inside that character and even these more simple understated uh less important characters you really get that from the characters the way they the way they talk the way they interact with the other puppet characters it's so cool so that's a really important thing to say about this specific whole otherwise seems like a holdover from like the dark crystal world you know, oh, it seems definitely. like, you know, yeah. very complex, very odd, two characters in one type of thing. Almost like uh, you think of like a a twin, you know, like a, what do you call oh, it? Oh, a Siamese when, twin? Like a Siamese twin. Like yeah. these two are stuck together and they're constantly arguing that dynamic, right, which is right. really, which is kind of cool. I like that. Yeah, I like uh, Dana and I used to watch this movie a lot. Our sister, when I was a kid, and I remember we used to say like, okay, okay, it's all right. It's all right. So. Yeah, really memorable character for me. Next up, we meet Ludo. Now, James Ketchum wrote into us on this and says, I've owned this movie in every format it's possible to own it in. Really? You own the Laserdisc, James? Oh, you might have. I've just recently shown it to my 10 and 8 year olds. I sang the whole thing. I got some dad eye rolls. But when I explained that everything in the movie was a puppet, they were pretty impressed. Ludo friend, 
how many potential high school to college girlfriends did I derail by insisting they watch this movie on our second and third date? The answer is all of them. <laughs> Thank you for writing in, James. So well done, Ludo, James. of course, ends up being a main character. Very. So here's the thing about this character to me. I don't know if you see it. In the beginning of the movie, when they're panning over Jennifer Connelly's bedroom, there are Shel Silverstein books. I don't yes. know if you see them. And they're, they're actually the old ones before they have the, the very iconic white covers with black text and black drawings on them now, but they weren't always that. And so she has like the older, maybe first editions on there. And this reminds me of a Shel Silverstein character in some way. I'm wondering what you make of Ludo and his his kindness and his ability to convene with Earth to <laughs> send rocks around and all the rest. Very charming character. And, I, and someone had written in earlier, I think I said it, but again, the creativity of not only having the goblins attacking him and torturing him for some reason. Yeah. The goblins each have a number on their helmet, which I think is interesting. I never really understood that. I thought that was really cool. And they go the extra step. And it's the meta of the meta of the meta of giving them spears that have like these little creatures on the end that are attacking Ludo instead so of it's, it's just so much creativity. So, yeah. What do you think about Ludo? Yeah, just gluttons for punishment in terms of detail, just pure complicated detail. It's amazing. I, I should have known being a huge Shel Silverstein fan, I should have noticed that. And also Maurice Sendak. He had something to do with the screenplay, although he's uncredited. I heard it somewhere. And in that opening of Sarah's room, you get the bookshelf and you see a couple where the wild things are, I think in the night kitchen, a couple other Shel Silverstein sort of send-ups in that opening pan. But yeah, I love Ludo. You know, I'm a real, I'm a sucker for the big, like the gentle giant character. You know, the lovable brute, the character you would think would be this angry, destructive, incredible Hulk type, but really with the heart of gold. I love that type of character, and I love the character designer in me. Really loves the way this character looks in a lineup. This is the proper way to do a character lineup. You need the big character, the little character, the fat character, the skinny character. So when you have them all together you have that visual feast. You know, you have that dyna that dynamic nature of having them all together in one party or one group. I love this character. And I heard somebody else say this. I don't want to repeat something that somebody else said. I don't know if I was reading it, but I loved this character as a kid, but he is very annoying in this movie. I love the way he looks. I love the sweetness of this giant brute of a character, but he keeps repeating that that bog of eternal stench stinks. He must say it 20 times and it's annoying. It's just an annoying bit of writing. Like they should have seen that in the editing room though. Every time Sarah or Hoggle says something and then he echoes it with just saying like smells bad or whatever. It's like, all right, we get it. We know that it smells bad. Like stop. (laughs) Super annoying. (laughs) Yeah. We understand. We understand. Thank you. We get it. Ludo. So, from here, Dig, we come across the door knockers. Now, this is a, a cool scene too. the right and left door knockers. Again, two characters interacting with each other. Again, another piece of cleverness, I think, and how one can't talk and one can't hear. And I, I absolutely love that. And I don't remember as a kid taking as much humor from this scene as I did when I was, when I was watching it as a 36 year old man. Like the the guy on the left, the 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 knocker with through his ears is hysterical because he's like he just can't hear anything and he just doesn't care and he's like I can't hear you know I can't hear you <laughs> and the other one doesn't want to put the knocker back in his mouth so I remember you know she she squeezes his nose a really clever scene there too anything to say about these guys just yeah another another duo of characters yeah I didn't really I didn't remember the scene and you know another sort of a, like you said a pair you know that that are seemingly annoyed by each other but need each other to coexist I love like. 
the throes of humanity in that. It's like it's like an old married couple. It's 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 super cute, and the way you know you have it's two heads are better than one, right? The way a character you could build a character by having two characters play off each other rather than just having one character. It's just makes for more fun storytelling. As far as the characters we come across next day from here, in looking at my notes, we have to talk about the fireys. Cassandra M wrote in and said, hello, my favorite knockback brothers. I absolutely love the Labyrinth movie. However, as a kid, the part when the fireys try and take Sarah's head gave me nightmares for weeks. When I rewatch this movie nowadays, there are many parts that I still find super creepy. My question is, is there any part of the movie you remember giving you nightmares or scaring you as a kid? And do those same parts still creep you out today? For myself, the fireys are still super creepy and often fast. I often fast forward through this part. Have a stellar day, boys. As always, thank you for your amazing content. Thank you, Cassandra, for writing in. The fire gang, as they're also known, are very, very weird scene. And the song is weird. This is where the, the, the movie breaks down a little bit, I think, with CG as well. Although a lot of it does still look good. Like when she gets away, I love how their, their heads are still bouncing up next to the castle. And you can still see them as they're walking away. A lot of clever touches there. But this scene, to Cassandra's point, is creepy and weird. And it is one of those things where you're like, yeah, I don't think this would be in a modern labyrinth because I think it's too, too much. What do you make of this strange scene? It's so, it is really crazy. I mean, there's something to me that's always been so off-putting about seeing the Muppets or the puppets whole body, right? Like when you see that odd thing in the Muppet movie where you see Kermit riding his bike, it just doesn't look right. Like you need the, the Muppets existing in medium shots because when you see below the waist, it's just weird. You know, it's kind of weightless. It's kind of funky. It doesn't really look right. It looks wonky. And I think even when you have a more intricate puppet, maybe even more so when you have these complex characters, you get this in the in the dance magic dance sequence a little bit too when they're jumping, you know, that jump magic jump bit. And you see that bit of weightlessness. You see mm-hmm. that they're they're on strings or they're being controlled by wires. It just doesn't, it takes the it makes them feel like they're not living all of a sudden. It makes it feel like you're manipulating a stuffed animal. And I think that's what these characters are. These characters, these fiery characters feel to me like you could, you could imagine a guy like Jim Henson or Frank Oz. They have a book of like puppeteering challenges. You know, these guys are super creative. You know, there's things that they want to try, you know, like they, they really want to do something. And wouldn't it be cool to have puppets that come apart? And all of a sudden you could take off their heads and you could sort of put their arms where their legs go or attach their legs to their head and have their head crawl around. Like it seems like the next evolution in master puppeteering, like what these guys would want to try next, like these master race car drivers that want to drive like the next great Ferrari. Like, what can we do? Like, we've done everything. Let's do this. It seems like something they whipped out that they've probably been thinking of since the 70s that they finally had an opportunity to do. That would be an amazing challenge in just orchestrating and pulling off. And that's what this feels like to me. And I think that's probably why it's weak. It's not, it was probably something thrown in because they thought it would be something cool to do rather than a genuine part of the story. It almost seems like a separate removable piece of the whole movie that you could just take off and make a, like a one-off short hmm. for me. And it still like feels that way. I don't know. If it's partially because they're so brightly colored that they stand out in this world, again, where it's like muted colors and earth tones and beiges and browns and greens, all of a sudden you have these funky purple and pink and orange dudes. But I thought it, I think it's fun. I could see 
the challenge in it, like it looked like it was probably an amazing thing to pull off for these puppeteers. I'm sure they were super proud of themselves, but it's not, you know, you, you spend the, the entirety of the sequence wishing, wishing Jareth would come back <laughs> for me. No, I, I, it's funny you say that, Dig, because we are both living at work in creative fields, right? Where you're really feeling your, yourself and you're like, this is good and this is clever. And, you know, I'm writing my stories. Or you're making your, you know, you're storyboarding something or whatever. And you're like, yeah, this is good. And then at some point you kind of just believe your own hype or you, you start not being as critical towards maybe the commercial or <laughs> real reality of the way your things are coming <laughs> off. I mean, I, I learned that with Twin Breaker, especially just writing a story that was kind of sniffing my own farts in some way. And you learn about, you know, and, and Herboxia 2 is a much looser story and so on and so forth. So right. it's just that we have the, they had the benefit of only having this in a movie that is slightly distracting and people are, this is one of those things where I'm like, this could have just been removed and we could have gotten five minutes back personally, because I don't even feel like it feels coherent in the story or the way it's presented. In fact, if you look at, I always look, they don't stick on Jennifer Connelly too long in the, in the, in the wide scenes, the wide shots, but she looks totally out of place. And, and I know that. I've read it a long time ago. I actually didn't read anything about the movie this time. I, I'm, I'm kind of sick of reading about movies going into these things. I just don't do it <laughs> I just want to like talk about the what I think about the movie, you know, and not have anyone else's thing. But I know that they were, they were, um, both she and David Bowie, I think, struggled a lot with acting in an era where it wasn't, you know, you had your Sesame Street guys that knew what they were doing and you had a few other things, but green screening wasn't really a thing and there was no. certainly no cg compositing or anything like that at that time so you can see that she, they're just like look around and you know i know david bowie was saying something like how you know you're talking to a puppet but the fucking voice is coming from behind you yes you know? that's hard. that's got to be hard for an actor yeah for sure yeah. yeah very early compositing if it was if any compositing was done on the computer at ilm at this period i you know you talk about 85 maybe into early 86 like that had to be you know it was they were very early efforts outside of analog compositing and you know it the compositing is the weakest part i think you know because we're so used to really clean proper unpixelated pristine compositing now that sure. and the technologies have made you know rat it's been rapid growth since the 80s uh you know you talk about cg animation and the other areas of tech but that that especially yeah, that's one of the things that's even with the caterpillars, the worm scene that we see earlier on, you could see the parts that were composited versus the parts that were just mm. shot in miniature. So, you know, back then, but again, it's kind of part of the charm. But I, you know, with the fireys, I agree with you, Kyle. It just seemed like you have some give, like you have some leeway in such a surreal, surreal outing that you could do something odd and seemingly one-off and zany and get, get as crazy as you want. But it just didn't seem like, yeah, a cohesive part of the storytelling. It really didn't. Sure. And now, I mean, we brought up the, the bog of eternal stench, which we hear over and over. We finally see it. Now, I find this quite charming as well because they're getting away from the fireys or whatever, but there's a lot of work put into the bog itself. You, could, you would think that this is where maybe the creatives could take a little bit of a break. You just make... Uh, a watery area, some trees and flora and fauna, maybe some things move. You got frogs or whatever, but they actually do a lot of work. Like there's a, there is a composite shot of like a fairy or something, something flying across. And then I love the the practical effects of just the bog, the bubbling bog of the, you can see that it's like leather or something, but it's cool. And, and just, they're just not shy with the fart noises, which I also, <laughs> that really sells it as well. 
But at this point, Dave, we reach my favorite character, Sir Didymus. And Keith McCarthy wrote into us and said, hey, C&D, I just want to give a shout out to the two unsung heroes of the movie and Sir Didymus and Ambrosius. The scene where we're introduced to Didymus taking on Ludo to protect the passage over the bridge is hilarious. And I love the fact that his noble steed is a cowardly sheepdog. It is all aw- I mean, this character is charming and I've always loved this character and was frustrated a little bit even as a kid. I'm like, why don't you introduce this character earlier? This is how did no one know that this was like maybe the most charming of all of your your party members, like in, in a very role playing game like thing. It's like the last guy that joins your party, like the edge of your party or the Fusoya. And nice I dig I dig this this performance because Didymus and Ambrosius have an ha, understand each other in some way. We don't really know what their understanding is, but he has a they saddle this sheepdog up. It's fucking hysterical. <laughs> and the fu- and the funniest thing is is that his whole thing is like I, you can't cross the bridge without my permission. And then Jennifer Connelly is like, well, why don't you just give us permission? He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's very very funny. And when he's fighting Ludo, there's a lot of physical comedy that brings to bear. I think Jim Henson and his crews uncanny ability to make puppetry funny there's that one scene where ludo tosses him and he bounces right back you know what so I'm talking good about? it's fucking hysterical i don't know like, how they even did that what they must have done was they threw him and then they had another one ready and they so they launched him basically at the same i was time, so impressed know? by that yeah i was like I that it. was amazing timing yeah it's it's hysterical and it's just this this fierce dog riding another dog that protects this shitty bridge <laughs> But he has like a good heart and he's noble and he wants to protect Sarah and he wants to he, he becomes friends with Ludo and and it turns around really quick. I am I, I absolutely love Didymus. He's insane. I love when it, later in the Goblin City when like Ambrosius is running away and he's like the fights in the other <laughs> and like he's like trying to negotiate with him basically like can we talk you know like it's very funny and I feel like this is a character that is charming for children and directed towards adults and just because you have to be kind of an adult to understand why some of this is funny and silly. It's, it's funny beyond just the aesthetic. So yeah. What did you think of Didymus and Ambrosius? It's true. It's the total Jim Henson sense of humor here in this character. And you know, it does seem like kind of a throw, like a nod to the adults too, right? You have this character who's brave, stout hearted, valiant, but also clueless. You know, he lacks any kind of self-awareness at all. Like, so brave that he doesn't even know when the odds are against him or when he's defeated or when he should be worried. And then his steed is this cowardly dog who he's always yelling at, who he spends three quarters of the battle trying to get back into the fight rather than right. fighting, which is which is hilarious. And you know, you kind of you kind of know people like that. You know, you kind of know it smacks of reality, the Sir Didymus. I was really interested. Helene was like, this is an annoying character. And I was like, how do you why is he annoying? Like he's so He's so funny, like the fact that he's just so brave that he doesn't even know he's done. Like he yeah, has like, no. He, he won't, he's always like, barking. He's like, ah, <laughs> it's hysterical. It is. He won't surprised. even admit it. Like he can't even right. see it. You know, it's not. It's beyond like trying to cover up your um, cowardice. It's like cowardice doesn't exist on this guy's radar at all. Like you know, he's he just thinks. In he's, fact, he asks. He asks, "Am I a coward?" At one point, because he. Oh, that's and right. He, yeah, and it's awesome. Like so, right. yeah, he's. He's not a coward at all. No, but, my God. And Hoggle no, is the coward, you know? Hilarious. hilarious. Such a great yeah, character. Great. And the throwback to, I guess, Sarah's dog, right? Merlin. Yeah. I think it's the same dog. Yeah, Merlin. And 
Yeah, it's, I just love the scene of him running up with his saddle on it, and then he jumps on him. It's like fucking hysterical. It's I don't understand so how you can't find that funny. But this leads into the masquerade ball scene. So we know, of course, that Hoggle is given a drugged peach, it looks like, that he feeds to Sarah, and he's a coward, and she has a trip, and she says, everything's dancing, which is a really interesting line. And she finds herself in this masquerade ball. I actually was, I found this scene quite appealing, but the problem with this scene is the creepiness factor because I don't know what it's trying to tell us. Is Jareth into her? Because I looked, Jennifer Connelly is like 15 years old when yeah. they're filming this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, it's not one of those weird things like where Jennifer Connelly's in that early 90s Target, you know, that movie, that John Hughes movie that takes place in Target, like the entire thing. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And she's like a sex symbol in that movie. Well, yeah. that's like five years later. Right. You know, like, and there's that famous music video, and she's just got a movie. I forgot about that movie. Yeah. I was actually reading about that recently about how everyone hates that movie, but I actually haven't seen the full thing. But that's like different. That's like when Jennifer Connolly is like an adult. Yeah. She's a child here, and it's not even like a borderline thing or, or so like a Fonzie kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know. <laughs> so. What do you think of the the masquerade ball and what it's trying to tell us? Yeah, and she's supposed to be this age too. She's supposed to be 15, 16. Right. Uh, you know, very similar age to she they is. They established that, as you said, with the stepmom, because yeah. she says, like, you're at the age you should be dating, you should be with your right. friends. So they establish that. It's not like she's you know, 12. Oh, yeah, or 12 or false starting, and she's like in her 20s and she just lives at home. You know? Right. Like, good point. We know how old she is. Yeah. So they established that. Which doesn't help, interestingly enough. No, I, it's no. funny. I always think of Jennifer Connelly. Think of her in A Beautiful Mind opposite Russell Crowe, right? Mm-hmm. She's got her Oscar. I always think of her in Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. Probably sure. because she's so good in that and also because opposite Jared Leto, of course, and also because that movie is just so damn haunting. If you guys haven't seen that movie, that's that's a piece of art, that movie. It's very disturbing. But I highly recommend it. She's awesome in that. I always think of her in, t- you know, in connection with that film. But she's also really good in this. Here's the thing, Kyle. I looked into this, okay? David Bowie, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he passed in 2016, as we mentioned. I believe he was 69 at the time of his passing. So if you do the math backwards, he was around 38, 39 when they filmed this, okay? We know Jennifer Connelly is supposed to be 16. Maybe you could suspend your disbelief to say Jareth is in his late 20s. Maybe. If he's a human. You know, there's this, um, again, this immortal Dracula type thing going on, obviously. But so you have that big age disparity, right? So the masquerade ball, although visually it's beautiful, I love the way they kind of have this nondescript setting and the chandeliers and sort of the ethereal amorphous nature of the setting and everything like that. It's really beautifully done, really beautifully shot. It sort of culminates in this thing where you you would think, I mean, I guess you could kind of think, especially if you look at the details, like we're talking about in her bedroom, in Sarah's bedroom in the beginning, she has pictures of David Bowie al- along her vanity. Is he some kind of Broadway star? She's got playbills. There's some sort of ceramic sculpture of Jareth in there. Like there's all kinds of things. So is it some sort of girlhood teenage crush on some sort of movie star i don't know interesting but it seems to be which is acceptable right but then it seems to be working in the opposite way where it seems like he's a little predatory there's something odd going on here and then i was thinking about all the little touches in the masquerade ball where he's sort of hiding from her and he's sort of she's sort of searching for him and it's, it's this frantic music video thing going on and then i started to look at some of the masks 
of some of the attendees of the ball. And I was like, some of these masks are from Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's last movie, which is anything but a kid's film, if you guys have seen it. Beautiful movie, very haunting. But then I started to think like, okay, then it started to take on a really disturbing nature for me because, again, of that age disparity and seemingly intimating at least that there's some sort of romance here that I think kind of moves both ways. And this is even before we get to that very MC Escher-esque sequence with the staircases on the ceiling and everything like that. So it's interesting. I don't remember this scene as a kid. Again, I was a little older. I was 12 years old when this came out, so I wasn't little by any means. And I'm wondering what you thought. You said it appealed to you even as a kid. It's not a long sequence, so I can't. it doesn't really take you out of the action or the fun too long, but it is odd. It's an odd choice. Like they had to know it was the eight, it was 35 years ago, but they had to know what they were dealing with here. They had to know in the editing room, at least that this looks like a romance between a teenager and somebody in their thirties. And, you know, are we going to sort of acknowledge this Lolita-esque thing going on here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. They should, they were going to start playing uh, don't stand so close to me by the police during the scene. <laughs> Sting, another uh, candidate for this part. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he may I could imagine him in this part. Too. He's another, you know, sort I love, of I love the policeman. So I have no yeah, he's interesting. He's supposed to be a douchebag, but that's not a huge surprise. The which David Bowie apparently is decidedly apparently not a douchebag in interaction. No, he seems so grounded. Yeah. Right? He's great. He, he was great. We miss him a lot, but yeah, it's weird. Like the whole poison fruit drugging her. I don't know. I don't even understand like what the point of all of that was. So it is a little weird. But when she wakes up, it brings us to like the garbage dump. And I feel like this is when the allegory starts to come into play. We see a or more deeply comes into play. Anyway, we see like a, a facsimile of her bedroom. This is when I started to realize like the posters on her wall. And you brought up Escher. There's an Escher like poster on the wall behind her bed that shows the ending of the movie. And it shows it from the beginning of the movie because when they go back to her oh, bedroom shit. in the when they go back to the bedroom at the end, it's there. So again, it's one of those weird hints that something is going to happen. Again, it could be part of this, could be an Escher art piece of Escher art, or it could be part of this world. She might be, you know what I kind of think about it is like, is she into this thing? Like it's twilight almost, you know, it's like this, this world that a lot of people become encapsulated in, in some way, vampiric and sexual and uh, whatever, you know, might be titillating to a teenage girl. So I like this because this is where I wasn't getting it as a kid, but I think that as an adult or a a smarter viewer realizes what they're trying to do now. And it's like you have, but you're distracted by all these things. What about this? And well, what about that? And I love the designs of the two trollish goblins, the garbage people with all the things they have attached to like a wrench and and a wagon wheel and all this kind of stuff. And you can tell it's, it's trying to say she's I mean, at least my allusion to it is that she's trying to she's being weighed down by childhood like fantasies and things that she should let go of. And this idea of what is and what could be. What do you think about this? This scene as an adult. Yeah, man, it's it's I mean, are you talk about specifically the bedroom scene with the junk lady and all the, and yeah, all yeah. the gear and yeah, say, that happens right when they. Yeah, right after. Yeah. So they move into according to my notes here. Yeah, she's drugged. That's like right after the masquerade ball. Yeah, yeah, up. yeah. Yeah, it's so it's I was really trying to get some sort of meaning from it, you know, and that's where we kind of fall into those those foibles of adulthood. I think as a kid, you could just enjoy it as an adult. You're trying to figure out what the hell this all means, at least that it kind of smacked of that for me. And 
you know, it seemed like I love the junk lady specifically again with that giant sack of stuff on her and the, st- the stuffed animals and all the childhood objects and how she's sort of trying to pawn off these things on her or make her make Sarah realize these are still important. This isn't junk. Like, you know, have this, have this stuffed animal, have this doll, have this outfit, have this uh, game, whatever it was. And her, like, almost like Sarah trying to sort of leave her childhood behind, but being saddled with these reminders or these burdens of people still trying to make you feel like you should still stay there, which is weird though, because the mom seems to be, the stepmom seems to be taking it in the other direction with, you know, I guess motivating her or supporting her to go out and date and why don't you have a date tonight and, you know, getting behind her that way. And also how does the Jareth thing play into that? Does he want her to grow up too? Does he not want her to grow up? Yeah. That's super creepy. I couldn't really put my finger on that. Like what, you know, what were they trying to say here was, her attraction or her romantic feelings towards this this Jareth, was that drawing out her adulthood from her childhood? And why did the goblins working for him want to keep her in childhood? So it was like, it start, the more you think about it, the more kind of confusing it gets almost, you know? Yeah, it is. It, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. And, and, and the scene does lead up to the culmination in the Goblin City. I think this part drags a little bit too, but one of the cool things I like is... And again, I brought this up earlier, the door turning into a like a basic huge machine. It's very video game like. And I love that, you know, Hoggle kind of comes to save the day. But we see again that this thing is being controlled from within. Calls in the question, what's going on? Is it, is it magic? Is it mechanical? Like it, It's a fusion of all of those things. And it's like you said, also fusing these things together makes things so much more interesting. It, steampunk is kind of the, the source of this, I would say, in some way. And. Yeah, delving into fantasy and light sci-fi elements, supernatural elements, uh, elements of uh, immortality and all of this is great. And I love the Goblin City. They get a little crazy, though. Like, I, I don't I almost don't feel like this scene's even needed that much because it's strange in a way. It's probably the weakest part of the movie to me. They're all just partying as they have been in the Goblin City. They're not aware that any of this is happening or that they're at the gates and they they all form up. And there's a lot of cool visuals here. Like I love the the different, like I guess they're lieutenant, the lieutenants or whatever that have like the red and blue armor and the oh, different colored cool. armor. It's really neat. There's a lot of visual cues here, but it get, they're, they're shooting cannons and it's all explosive and stuff. It gets a little crazy. Everyone goes into the house. It turns into kind of like a Left 4 Dead style tower defense game as they're bashing people coming into the windows. <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> but I do love the the... They're in, they introduce some cool ele- visual elements here too. We finally see like the the goblin steeds, which are basically like these lizard like creatures, and and all the rest. What do you think about kind of the ending leading up to the staircase scene? Yeah, it's cool. It seems like a proper crescendo to be reaching. Right, you have like again, like you said, the cannons with the living cannonballs that they're shooting out. Even those things are alive. They have these cyberpunk like machine guns, like. For a for a young kid, I could see this being like, all right, this is kind of cool. Like they're fighting the steeds, the the red stormtrooper like armored dudes. Like it seemed like a nice payoff to get to the end, at least visually. Even if a lot of it doesn't really make sense, or you have to suspend your disbelief, and sort of it playing to that pinnacle of feeling dreamlike. Still, I mean, even if you think of like little touches of Sarah's real life being interwoven into this world like Merlin, like her dog. Like why 
I think that's why watching this for the first time as a kid, you feel like she's going to wake up from a dream. It seems like a lot of this world is of her making, even down to her toys or her dog. It's like, it's it gets, very, even though this is a cool sort of donument as we're reaching the end of the movie, like it seems, it makes it a little more confusing still. It's like, what is this place? What is the meaning of all of this stuff? You know, it's it, it seems to be bogging it down and more confusing. You have to kind of almost dismiss it as just entertaining at this point because it's like, what is going on? I think by this point in the movie, you're so enthralled by all the visuals, hopefully, that you're just not just asking a million questions. Because by this right. part of the movie, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I have no idea what's happening here. And I even tried to research it. And like you said, reading about or listening to other people talk about this stuff, you just find honestly nine times out of 10 that it's the same regurgitated shit over and over again. You know, there's really no, or it's pure theory, you know, personal theory. Some of it might be really quite good, but it's not really useful talking about, you know, I would love to know what Jim Henson and George Lucas were thinking. Even David Bowie, I'm sure he had a lot to say creatively in this, in a vehicle. Uh, Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. Like what? And again, like you said, not one of those weird things that comes from purely from a screenplay inspired by things, but not based on a book like The NeverEnding Story. Or something like that, you know, a purely fictional creation out of the minds of these people, pretty much, you know, with maybe drawing on 1% inspiration from the Brian Frouds and from the Maurice Sendax, you know. So it it makes it pretty compelling for me. Like, I I really want to know what they were thinking with this, or was this just some sort of zany Muppet show-like thing with fantasy characters with much more complex puppets? You know, is that all this was? And David Bowie at the center of it. Which is okay. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, give me that. I'm cool. Sure. Sure. You know? sure. But I want to stop guessing. <laughs> well, at this end, Dave, I mean, what do you think about the ending of the movie? The the, the stairs, it's, it's visually stunning. It's iconic. Another Castlevania connection here for me. How do you end every Castlevania game? <laughs> That's right. Right? You of walk course. upstairs and you go to meet Dracula. And so there is another connection there and for me. And just let me rule you. <laughs> Which is another weird thing he says to her. So what do you think about this ending? I, I, I was saying to, to Micah that there's certain noises in the movie that really connect to my childhood. I love the noise of the switch, the light switch in her room. Oh. And I love the noise like it's clicking and ours don't make those kinds of noises. So I just always love that. It's very old. And the other thing I love is the walking on the the stone on the stairs, like the the, the way that it's so crisp and, and it pierces through. How do you enjoy the culmination of this and the retrieval of the baby and her heading back to reality. Those are good sounds. You're right. A little ASMR there. I like it. Definitely. I like it, my friend. Yeah. I mean, the ending's fine. I mean, it all, it all culminates with this sort of thing with the goblins all in her room celebrating. They're having a good time. I guess she's gone in for growing up in the way she's treating her brother and she's thankful to see him and she's being more nurturing and the parents come home and for some reason, they're asking if she's home, even though they charged her to babysit the infant. Very odd. And she's like, yeah, I'm home. You know, she seems much more upbeat, like she's going to get along with her parents now. Again, little things that you could kind of draw from for clues. And Jared in out, Jareth, sorry, Jared with a lisp is <laughs> at the, is at the, is at the window in his owl form. You know, it's, it seems sort of ominous, like this might happen again. Or maybe he'll come back when she's ready type thing again. Just maybe he'll wait 
you know, he did the grooming. Now, now he'll wait till she's of age. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, you know, again, thank God it's just a movie, you know, but yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's totally fine. It feels like the proper ending of a proper eighties movie. You know, it kind of leaves you like just as confused as the rest of the movie. It's like, I get, you know, but it looks cool, but it looks cool. That seems to be the MO. So it fits right in. I want to ask you this as we wrap up. Big swing and Rick wrote into us. Hey, you said, hey, boys, first off, great topic. This movie is so nostalgic to me. It's the one movie we owned on VHS. And I swear I watched it every week as a kid growing up. It started me down my 20 year crush on Jennifer Connelly. My imagination played such a big part in his realism. It's funny to watch it as an adult and see all the janky puppets. I don't agree with you about the jank. My question, according to a few articles from 2020, there are plans to move forward with a sequel or a remake. And the fan favorite for Goblin King is Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars, who came up earlier and worked with Jennifer Connelly in the past. How do you feel about that? Personally, I think the casting is solid, but the idea of a new movie in the place of the first is horrible. Good day, sir. So I was actually reading about this. Apparently, the woman who wrote uh, Detective Pikachu and um, a couple of Marvel movies wrote a script for a new labyrinth, and it just never went anywhere, I guess, like that she was asked to write in and they were producing it i think they want they're interested in doing it but i don't think it's going anywhere i think this movie is very dangerous to revisit and first of all i don't think there's any reason to revisit it because i don't think it's that big that's number one right like there's no reason to revisit it because it is not that big it is a big movie to gen xers and you know early millennials like me people born in the 70s and 80s i don't think labyrinth is that important to people today it would just be catered towards us and we would just hate it. So I don't think there's any reason to do that. I think Jared Leto is a great actor and I'm, I'm a huge fan of 30 Seconds to Mars. I love 30 Seconds to Mars. First three records are amazing. And he's a great actor. Yeah, he is. And I like him. And I think that similar to Johnny Depp is Wonka. That makes sense. Right. But, but apart from that, it's just not going to be right. And I, I just don't want to see that happen. So do you want to see them revisit this in any way? You know, what? I love that you break Johnny Depp into this conversation. Great actor. Didn't need him as Wonka. Jared Leto, great actor, didn't need him as Joker. But I mean, that's another conversation, but that's just the way it goes sometimes, you know? Now, Kyle, let me ask you a question first. Did you, when you hear about this new labyrinth creation in the, in the, in the offings, what did you hear? Was it going to be a prequel, sequel, remake? I think there were ideas. I think it, there was a, both an idea for a sequel and a remake. Okay. And the, Remake, I think, is a horrible idea. A sequel, I would actually be more appealing, would be more appealing if yeah. David Bowie was still alive and if you could get Jennifer Conley in it as yes. like the mother, uh, you know, her daughter finds the old red labyrinth book in the in the in the attic and rediscovers this fantasy world and reignites Jareth and the Goblin King and the Goblin City to come to life again. And right. And maybe it's about her adventure or maybe it's about Jennifer Connelly getting sucked back into this. And that would have been cool. But David Bowie's dead. And I don't think there's any reason to to revisit it based on that. Like, I don't mind the idea of a sequel, but without him, it's not a sequel. And a prequel would be fucking stupid. I don't even know what the prequel would be. It's labyrinth. It's not like I don't know that we need that much setup to it. So then that only leaves us with a remake. And that's going to be the worst thing they can do. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you mostly on all that. I think. A, like you said, how do you do it without David Bowie? He's such an icon. You know, we talk about him playing the character. It's only, it's it's David Bowie or nobody. I like the idea of having Jennifer Connelly associated with anything. I think she's awesome. I also think she's quite beautiful. I love her East Coast flavor. I mean, you look at Jennifer Connelly, even as a young girl in this movie, and you just feel that East Coast United States thing coming off of her. And when I researched that she's from upstate, 
She was schooled at a creative arts school in Brooklyn. She stayed on the East Coast most of her life. She just has, maybe that's why she's so good in Requiem for a Dream set in Brooklyn, because she just feels like, she feels Brooklyn to me. She feels East Coast United States to me. It just comes off of her. I like that flavor. She doesn't feel Hollywood to me. And that could also you know, speak to her, her choices that she's made creatively and for her filmography. I think one thing I thought of with this was that I think it's a shame that David Bowie didn't do more voices for animated characters. Now, apparently he did some things. He had young kids that wanted him to do something for SpongeBob. So he did this SpongeBob character that I guess was a, a recurring character for a little while and some other little things. But he never really did a proper voice for that I know of for a theatrical animated feature. And I think you could do Labyrinth or the world of Labyrinth, maybe a remake, traditionally animated, right? 2D animated, maybe with some digital components in there, not CG. I think that would be really cool. But the only thing is you couldn't get David Bowie's voice for that, which I think would be a big problem, you know? I don't think that would re- really work. Right. One thing you said, though, that I disagree with, though, Kyle, is the mm. fact of you think of all these iconic 80s things that are getting remade. Right? You think of, for instance, you think, well, Dark, you think Dark of, Dark for Crystal? instance, you think of something like Ghostbusters, yeah. right? Star Wars, something huge. I think the fact that this was smaller maybe could justify a remake just a little more. Now, mm. it's gone on to be a lot bigger in recent years in the home video and you know cable years rather than the theatrical release which is a very small period of time in relation but it would be interesting i mean i know that's a big part of the conversation when we when you talk about these movies it's like can we get a modern day remake but could you could you see a live action labyrinth property with a lot of CG, it just sort of flies in the face yeah. of everything that this movie is. And I think that's what makes it special is that we could talk about it in this retroactive way, in this nostalgic way. And you don't really need, just do something new. You know, if David Bowie was even, even if David Bowie was living now, I would say it would be so cool to see him in something else just because you want to see him on screen. He has a real magnetism. Again, talking about that real life sorcerer, right? He just feels like a magic dude. He just feels like a magic, feels like definitely. a count. You know, he definitely. feels like a Dracula. He really definitely. does. Definitely. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, so. I don't know. I, I think it's best to be left alone, but we'll see. I'm sure they won't. We'll see. But Diggs, is there anything we didn't touch upon that you wanted to talk about? You know, one thing I wanted to do, Kyle, because you think of, you know, you think of David Bowie and you think of what an icon he was. I mean, a rock god icon, one of the biggest rock stars that ever lived. He had a, a musical career that spanned from the late 60s, I think from 67, all the way to the year that he passed in 2016. He put an album out. Very prolific. Had such a longstanding creative energy, extending decades. And besides just being masterful and inventive and emblematic and inspirational to so many and you know, you think about the pers- personality and the eccentricity and the personas, and obviously the genius and the outfits and the makeup and the look and the covers of Rolling Stone and all that stuff aside, he really does seem like a cool, grounded person. It's amazing. Yeah. And you could really see that come out in people's interviews. When you look at 100% of their interviews, and 100% of the time they're engaged, they're polite, they're doing their best to give a good interview, talk about the things that they're 
they want to, they have to talk about, answer the questions that they're being asked. Like he's just such a, he just seemed like a real genuine dude. Like, and to be larger than life and to still have both feet firmly planted on the earth is just, you don't see that a lot. You know, I think that's why part of the reason besides his genius and all the stuff he gave us in his discography and his filmography, I think that's one of the reasons you miss a dude like this. You know, you think of a, a Robin Williams too, like somebody who just seemed like joyful about what they did, you know, and seemed to be, despite maybe the problems on, you know, off camera, you know, and, you know, David Bowie had drug addiction problems and I guess he was in and out of marriages and all the kind of things that come with life. I just think he seemed like such a cool dude. And, you know, it just makes you realize how special he was when you watch a movie like this and you just want to see him on screen. Like you're, you're so sad when he's missing from a shot. It's like, you know, you just want to see more David Bowie. And, you know, now you got to go back. I look at his filmography, all the movies he's done. I haven't seen quite a few of them. So you could always go back and see, you know. Also, here's the thing. You're this big as a rock star, right? Think of any giant rock star. He's, he's comparable. He's right up there with them, right? What makes you want to also be involved in pictures, in Hollywood, a whole nother medium, a whole nother craft, like, sure. and all the probably aggravation, not needing money, all the aggravation that could come along with that. And just be like, you don't see that a lot. You know, you see that with other, other artists to some degree. You saw that with Michael Jackson a little bit. We talked about Sting, some other rock stars, but you don't see it a lot where it's like, this guy's a proper actor too, with a proper, you know, catalog history of movies that he's done under his belt so interesting of a dude definitely you know definitely and like you said just a prolific creator um i didn't realize i was reading a bit about his discography there's two things i learned number one is i didn't know he his first record came out in the 60s i thought he came out in the 70s and the second thing is, is that he has 27 studio records 27 amazing now, even a band that i love that creates a lot of records like 311 they're on like what their 12th or 13th album and they've been together for 30 something years so he was releasing a lot of stuff and obviously it was a seminal 1983 release uh let's dance that put him on the map for a lot of people that record for people that don't know is just amazing that i knew you were gonna mention that one that has china girl on it and modern love which is my favorite bowie song how can you listen to modern love without singing along to it oh my god it's so good dude yeah, and he all, stayed yeah, relevant all- all oh, through, a, yeah. starting in the 60s, all through the 70s, in the 80s, reinvented himself, became bigger than ever. Like, you don't see that. You know what I mean? People, even look at the Beatles, Zeppelin, Sabbath, like, they phase out or they become solo acts or whatever happened. And he did. You know, he, he eventually, but as long as he was tied to something, you had that iconic voice, the songwriting, the flavor. Like, I don't think I ever really realized or thought about Bowie that much until I started watching this or, or knowing that we were going to do the episode. Then I was like, really dug down deep as far as like, this is like one of the most important musicians that ever lived. I mean, really, but modern, you know, in modern parlance, for sure. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that at all. Unbelievable. Well, Labyrinth is available to, I actually ended up watching it on Amazon. It's available to rent there. You watch it. It's on HBO Max, I think. Yeah, HBO Max. And you can just get it wherever you want. Uh, It's worth the, the price of admission, I think. Go check it out if you haven't already, but hopefully you didn't get this far into our conversation having not seen it and spoiling it for yourself. Dave, let's end as we always do with a dad joke. Dad joke, my friend. And you know what's the other thing? I didn't realize his eye. I thought he was doing that to his eyes. He was injured. One eye is super. Now, if you know David Bowie, I don't know if it's right or his left, 
one eye is super dilated. He has a huge pupil and the other one, he has a normal pupil. So he looks, he has that Alaskan Malmute. Is that the dog with the two different type of eyes? He has that look to him, but it's like, it's not put on. Like he got an eye injury as a kid and he just kept it that way or it stayed that way or whatever. I thought that was really interesting. You know, it just makes him that much more like a real life sort Dracula sorcerer type, you know, super funny, dude. Definitely. All right, my friend. Now, dad joke brought to us by our friend, again, Brian Henninger, the most featured of our listeners. I think on knockback, I would argue via Instagram call a man went to the hospital with 25 toy horses inserted into his rectum. Oh dear. The doctors have described his condition as stable. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. That's a great, that's a great one. Very well. It's irresistible. All right. A little off color. A little, well, so is David Bowie's gigantic penis in the. Uh, oh, so, oh, oh, by the way, by the way, uh, you would appreciate this. So we were at Dana's this past weekend uh, for just a barbecue. Uncle Mike was there and Carla, uh, Jamie and Allie and, and everyone. And I, I was telling Uncle or telling someone that I, um, you know, I was working out and I flexed. I was like, you know, I was like and, every, and everyone was like, oh, but it was like a real. And Michael was there because it was, she was funny because everyone it was like a real thing. Like, a real oh, it was a real. Legit. Yeah, it was like a real, re- yeah, it was a real reaction. Oh, you know, like as as I was, wow, as I was flexing. Yeah, I'm proud of the family for that one. You want to mess with me? See, if I did that, it would do the Popeye thing and fall from underneath. You know, the bicep would just yeah, drop. Yeah. You need your spinach. I need. I gotta have my spinach, but I do have this. I'll just give it. Get off the mic here for a sec. Yeah, look at that. You look great. Regaling that. Yeah, definitely. Freddie Mercury, be damned. I know. No, R-R-T. that's not nice. No, that, no that's not. Nice. I take that's that back. It's already, he's, they've already made a decision on Freddie Mercury. He's, he is where he is. You don't move around. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> all right, Dig. Uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate all of you out there for your love, kindness, and support of Knockback. Remember to go on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media for early ad-free access to this show and all of our other shows. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Jordan Mittman, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Avaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Hallen Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holt, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeffrey Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler 526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Antti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, 
Payton, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter86, Michael J. Sutherland, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travelus Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubber, Ray Lagia, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Dan Parson, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Kyle Thomas, James Kinsler III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinnison, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. We should have spun the balls. Why didn't we spin the balls? I got some balls for you to spin. We didn't talk about David Bowie's balls at all. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 